Welcome to the Real View podcast, where Ohio realtors connect you to innovators and influencers, keeping you with the real view of real estate. Whether you're a broker, agent, first time home buyer, industry leader, or just happen to stumble upon our podcast today, you can expect to hear tips, tools, tricks, interesting information, and so much more from the experts in Ohio's real estate game. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of the Real View podcast. I am your host, Allison Wiley. With me is my co-host, Carrie Arblaster. And joining us today is our very special guest, author of The Color of Law, Richard Rothstein. Richard and Carrie, thank you guys for being here with me today. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Richard, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. As you know, our podcast is called The Real View. And one of the questions that we like to ask all of our guests is what is the best view that they've ever had? So what is the best view that you have ever had? Well, I think my favorite view is watching the tide come in on a salt marsh on Cape Cod. Very, very nice. It sounds beautiful. That's that's one of the places on my bucket list is the East Coast and Cape Cod and all that area. From the pictures I've seen, it just looks beautiful. I was going to say the same thing. I've never, never been up that way. In Ohio, we always tend to set head south. So we have this like really great experience south, but we don't often go east and we usually don't venture too far west. <laughs> so but that's wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. Yeah, I love it. You, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> well, you've got Lake Erie, which has gotten cleaned up a bit in the last couple of decades. Right? We're trying. Yes, we are trying. We are trying to clean up our lake. Lake Michigan, I go there more than I go to Lake Erie, but yeah, don't yeah. tell anybody. <laughs> I think Lake Michigan's a little nicer, especially if you want to swim and things like that in yeah, the summer. <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. And it's just huge. It's a bit overwhelming, actually. So, you know, we brought you on kind of in coordination with you being at our winter conference, but we actually are going to air this episode during Black History Month. And so we just wanted to hear your thoughts on Black History Month. Maybe you have some interesting insights as to its origin and why we celebrate it. Well, thank you. I often get asked to speak about the Black History Month. This is not Black history that I'm describing. This is white history. This is American history. And calling it Black history is a way of segregating it from our national story and national obligations. The uh, officials who implemented this policy were whites. They weren't African-Americans. And so I, I think uh, I would urge you, it's fine to celebrate Black History Month, but every month is Black History Month and every month is White History Month. And that's the way I hope we can think about it. Thank so you. true. I love that. Thank you. I would love to just hear a little bit about your life. You certainly have a very impressive resume. You've been an active thinker and participant in some very important conversations you wrote for the New York Times as an education columnist for several years. You spent time at Berkeley. You are now um, an, a contributing author at the Economic Policy Institute. There's a lot there. So if we could, we would love to just hear a little bit about your background and what led you to be interested and concerned about these topics. Well, as you noted, I was the education columnist at the New York Times for a while. For many years, I was the education policy analyst and writer at the Economic Policy Institute. Education is what my specialty was and what I knew about. I didn't know much about housing, but I became convinced that the biggest problem that American public education faces is the segregation of its schools. 
And the schools are segregated because the neighborhoods in which they're located are segregated. So I came to the conclusion that neighborhood segregation was a school problem, and I began to look into it further. That's how I got to this topic. Yeah, there's a lot there to read for our listeners. Please, please Google. There's a lot of wonderful, wonderful information. You know, The Color of Law came out in 2017, and it's still incredibly relevant, if not more relevant. I was looking through some of your old blog blog posts and you know, I know you had written one about the explosion of the achievement gap, you know, in education because of COVID. Um, and I think I would love to hear your thoughts, though, on the impact to of COVID on housing, you know, and how you think going forward that this is going to continue to perhaps make these segregation issues even more difficult. Well, I would I would reverse what you said. It's the impact of housing on COVID. The uh, fact that we have such a segregated society with African-Americans in particular, living in much more concentrated, uh, dense neighborhoods with less access to adequate housing makes them much more susceptible to uh, COVID and other transmittable diseases. If the only way to get COVID under control is to reduce its transmission with social distancing and uh, other measures like that, Obviously, people who are less able to socially distance because they live in more crowded conditions, because they have jobs that require them not to be able to work at home, working in restaurants or grocery stores or retail outlets, makes them much more susceptible to the transmission of the virus. So it's widely known that African-Americans in particular, Hispanics as well, are um, catching the virus uh, much more than whites are, but it all comes back to the fact that we have created a segregated society with less adequate housing for African-Americans than for whites. Yeah. And if you could, I mean, not, you know, I don't think we can't assume that all of our listeners have read your book and it is a lengthy book. There's a lot of information there, but if you could kind of just walk us through what, what you found and when you talk about kind of the history of housing in the United States and how it's gotten us to where we are. If you could give us some of the highlights, we'd love to hear that. Well, I will, but let me um, assure your readers of one thing. It's not a lengthy book. It's, uh, it's a big book because of four scholars. There are many, many pages at the end of sources, but the text itself is not cluttered up with sources. And so if somebody wants to read the book, it's actually not a very long book at all. Very good. Very good. Uh, I misspoke. I apologize. (laughs) No, I think the point of the book is that we have a national myth, a rationalization that we use for not doing anything about segregation. And that myth is that the reason we have segregated neighborhoods in every metropolitan area of this country is because of private activity. The government didn't create the segregation. We believe that the reason we have segregation is because of private bigotry, homeowners and landlords wouldn't sell or rent to African-Americans or private businesses like banks or realtors or developers discriminated in how they carried out their work, or maybe because people like to live with each other of the same race, or maybe it's just because of income differences. All of these non-governmental decisions is what's created racial segregation. We call it de facto segregation. And we figure that what happened by accident can only unhappen by accident. What happened naturally can only happen naturally. And the point of the color of law is to show that this is an 
other myth. It's, there's no basis to it whatsoever. It was racially explicit government policy that created the residential racial boundaries in every metropolitan area of this country. Perhaps the most powerful policy that the federal government followed was in the period after World War II. It embarked on a program to suburbanize the entire white working class population into single family homes in suburbs, which hadn't existed prior to that, except for the affluent working class families, middle class families weren't living in suburbs before the late 1940s, 1950s. The Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration issued bank guarantees for loans for developers to build giant subdivisions. Perhaps the most famous of them is east of New York City, but Levittown, but they exist in Ohio and, and around Cleveland, every uh, metropolitan area. The only way that these developers could get the capital to build these giant subdivisions was by going to the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administrations, submitting their plans for the projects and a commitment never to sell a home to an African-American. Uh, the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration even required these developers to place a clause in the deed of every home uh, prohibiting resale to African-Americans or rental to African-Americans. This was a racially explicit policy of the federal government. It wasn't the action of rogue bureaucrats. It was stated in writing in the manual of the Federal Housing Administration that was distributed to appraisers all over the country whose job it was to recommend or not recommend applications of developers to um, build these suburban developments. The manual said you couldn't uh, recommend for a federal bank guarantee a, a loan to build a project that was not going to be all white. The manual went so far as to say you couldn't even build an all white development that was near where African Americans were living. Because in the words of the manual, that would run the risk of infiltration by inharmonious racial groups. That's how the suburbs, the white suburbs were created. That's how African Americans were left behind in urban areas. These homes that were created in the mid 20th century long before housing prices escalated, were affordable to both African-Americans and to whites. In the, about 1950, they sold for about $8,000 a piece. Any African-American or white working class, middle class family could afford to buy the, a home like that. If they were returning war veterans, no down payment was required. In today's money, that's about $100,000. As you know, uh, those homes no longer sell for $100,000. They now sell, uh, depending on the suburb, and a part of the country, uh, three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars. In some places, a million dollars and more. The white families who were subsidized by the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration to buy these homes gained wealth from the appreciation in the value of those homes in the next couple of generations. They used it to send their children to college. They used it to take care of emergencies, uh, medical perhaps, or temporary unemployment. They used it to finance their retirements, and they used it to bequeath wealth to their children and grandchildren, who then had down payments for their own homes. Uh, African-Americans were prohibited from participating in this wealth-generating program, and the result is that today, although African-American incomes are lower than white incomes, it's about 60% family income. African-Americans have uh, family incomes at about 60%, the level of white family incomes on average. But African-American wealth is only 5% of white wealth. And that enormous disparity between the 60% income ratio and the 5% wealth ratio is entirely attributable to unconstitutional federal housing policy. It was practiced in the mid-20th century 
that we have an obligation to remedy, and it's an obligation uh, under the Constitution that we've never uh, accepted. Wow. I mean, that that in and of itself is certainly not something you learn um, in history class <laughs> as you're growing oh, it's up. so but crazy. It, My mind is just like blown as, as you're talking. It's just, wow. It should be, though, you know, and you're, you know, you mentioned the whole uh, racial covenants, you know, and actually here in Ohio, we still have those. There was a bill introduced last General Assembly um, to do away with them. It didn't make it anywhere. You know, we've had officials reach out to us and say, hey, would you be supportive of this? Of, of course we would be. But it's it's amazing to me. And up until last last General Assembly, I didn't even know that we had that here. I didn't know that that existed. You certainly just brought it up again, that it was, in fact, blatantly stated where people could and could not live. Well, you can't do away with those law, those covenants. You can't change a deed to a home. If the language is written into the deed, you can't remove uh, the covenant any more than you can wake up in the middle of the night and you say, I want to have a different property line. The deed is the deed. What you can do is uh, attach a statement, perhaps stapled over that portion of the deed, saying that we are ashamed that this kind of language was once considered acceptable. We uh, want to assert that we welcome people of all races and ethnicities to our neighborhood. I think that's the only reasonable thing to do with those uh, deeds. It's also, uh, even if it were possible to remove it, it's obviously a complicated issue whether we should remove all the evidence of how we created a segregation and inequality in this country. Uh, how are we going to teach the next generation about it if we remove all vestiges of it? It's not like a, a statue of a Confederate general, which you can't avoid being confronted with if you walk by it, even if you put a plaque at the bottom of it uh, saying that uh, this is shameful. But uh, placing a, um, a clause on top of the existing clause in the deed can serve to remind people that we have a lot of work to do to redress the segregation that we've created. A lot of work to do for sure. Um, what was the most surprising thing that you found in, in your research? And Maybe it was the fact that the government had such a strong role in the segregation uh, in this country, especially in housing. But what was the most surprising thing you found in your research? And what really made you want to go down this path of researching segregation and, and turning this into the book? Was it what you found with your experience in the education uh, system or what kind of that's kind of like a two, three part question there? <laughs> well, I'll tell you a secret. Nobody starts to write a book without having an idea that he's going to find something interesting as he does the research. So I had an inkling of this when I was a young man. I was a, uh, in the 1960s. I was a research assistant at the Chicago Urban League, and I worked on documenting a case that eventually went to the Supreme Court about how the Chicago Housing Authority had uh, deliberately placed public housing projects for African-Americans only in African-American neighborhoods and public housing projects for whites. As I said to you earlier, there were many whites living in urban areas, living in public housing in the mid 20th century, placing public housing projects for whites only in white areas. So I knew that the government had a little bit more to do with this than uh, is popularly believed. But what stunned me most when I was doing this research was how many federal, state, and local policies there were that were racially explicit, that were designed to uh, ensure that we would be a segregated society. I'll give you one example from uh, Cleveland. 
The great African-American poet, novelist, playwright Langston Hughes writes in his autobiography how he grew up in an integrated downtown Cleveland neighborhood. As I indicated before, uh, we had lots of uh, downtown integrated neighborhoods uh, in the um, early, mid-20th century. Uh, Langston Hughes said he went to um, an integrated high school. He said his best friend there was uh, Polish-American. He dated a Jewish girl in high school. Not surprising what you would find uh, in an integrated high school, in an integrated neighborhood, which uh, don't exist in Cleveland anymore. But the Public Works Administration, the first New Deal agency that built the first civilian public housing in this country, went into that neighborhood of Cleveland and built two separate projects, one for whites, one for African-Americans, creating segregation where it hadn't previously existed. And with those and with other public housing projects also segregated elsewhere in Cleveland, reinforced a pattern of segregation that otherwise would never have had this kind of strength. So what surprised me the most was not that there was an example here or there, but there were so many policies, public housing, as I just mentioned, the suburbanization, the use of the police to protect, sometimes to organize and lead mob violence to drive African-Americans out of homes that they had legitimately purchased or rented in white neighborhoods. And that went on in Cleveland and every metropolitan area of this country. There are examples of that kind of police-protected violence to reinforce segregation. There were some explicit laws in some cities that uh, defined some neighborhoods as having to be converted into all-black or all-white planning documents. There were so many of these policies, and so what surprised me was that they all interacted in a way to uh, create the segregation that we know today. And as I said, this notion of de facto segregation is other nonsense. There's no basis in history to it whatsoever. Why do you think this isn't more known or talked about? You know, I mean, aside from your book, which really put all of this on a platform and so many people, you know, have have read it and it's brought awareness to the situation. But why do you think this is like not so much of a really known thing, the government's involvement in this terrible segregation? Well, in um, in my book, uh, The Color of Law, the subtitle was A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated in America. It was once well known. We've forgotten it because it's difficult to redress. You know, when we abolished in the 1960s segregation in places like uh, restaurants or buses, you pass an ordinance prohibiting segregation there, and the next day you can go to any restaurant or sit anywhere you want on a bus. You pass a, an ordinance prohibiting segregation in neighborhoods, and the next day things wouldn't look much different. So what we've all of done, all of us done, is adopted this rationalization to avoid confronting something that's tough. In my book, The Color of Law, I devote a section to surveying the textbooks that are used in American history classes all over the country. Every one of them lies about this history, promotes the notion of de facto segregation, brags about the suburbanization of the country that the federal government accomplished, never mentioning that it was for whites only. So we've conducted a a consistent program to wash our memories of this history. I'm actually involved in a a national group that's trying to organize something we call the New Movement to Redress Racial Segregation. Uh, We've put it on hold uh, during the pandemic. The idea is to create local committees of uh, citizens who are concerned and determined to redress the segregation of their own communities. If any of your listeners want to be on the announcement list when we issue this announcement of a new movement to redress uh, segregation, I can give you an email address they can just send their contact information to. It would be Carrie, C-A-R-R-I-E, 
at nmrrs.org. NMRRS is for the new movement to redress racial segregation. So we can do something about it. It's difficult. We will have a manual that describes many, many policies that uh, local activists can undertake in order to address the um, segregation of their communities. And I think we can make progress if we put our minds to it. I think so, too. And I'm going to definitely check that out. Thank you, because this is something, you know, that deserves attention and awareness. So I'm so happy you brought that up and, and so happy that, you know, there is hope and there is a chance, you know, that we could make it make an impact and in, in reverse some of this horrible past that this country and this government has kind of put us through. This episode of The Real View is brought to you by the Ohio Association of Community Colleges. Ohio's network of community colleges provides accessible training that accommodates the busy lifestyles of aspiring real estate professionals at half the price of a traditional university. With convenient locations in every part of the state, as well as online options, Ohio's community colleges are your smart choice for pre-licensing education. For more details or to start the journey to a real estate career, visit the education page at ohiorealtors.org and then click on the pre-licensed course locations. You wrote an article about the makings, if you will, of Ferguson and how public policy had led in part to that unrest. You know, I know, you know, we all know last summer was very intense and brought again to the forefront, really important and critical questions and concerns that we should all be thinking. But I, I just was curious if what you saw over the summer seemed very kind of reminiscent to the things that you said about Ferguson and what your thoughts are about how as a nation we are attempting to, to walk through and have a conversation about these really important topics. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because when I said a minute ago that I think we can make progress, although it's difficult, we're having a more accurate and passionate discussion about the legacies of slavery and Jim Crow in this country now than we ever have had before in American history, any time before in American history. As you mentioned, we uh, in the summer and spring, uh, we had demonstrations, Black Lives Matter demonstrations uh, all over the country. 95% of them were peaceful. They uh, enlisted some 20 million Americans, mostly white, and some, some of them in all white suburbs when people were first become aware for the first time in their lives about the fact that there was some involvement of government in uh, the resegregation of this country. So it's because of, of this new awareness that uh, I think my book has contributed to, but it's not uh, the sole contributor, certainly not, maybe not even the main contributor. I think we do have an opportunity now to uh, mobilize local committees to redress the segregation in their communities. So I'm very encouraged uh, precisely because of those demonstrations that you mentioned. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. What do you hope for the future of housing, especially fair housing in America? And the Fair Housing Act was passed in 1968, which you know was not that long ago, honestly. So that was passed in 1968, but it did not necessarily fix some of the problems that we're talking about. What do you think the impact of that is? And then what do you think the, the future of housing, especially fair housing, looks like? Well, the Fair Housing Act is important, although, as you probably know, we didn't really put enforcement mechanisms into it until 1988. So it's even more recent than you just suggested. 
But the Fair Housing Act prohibits ongoing discrimination in the sale and rental of housing. It's not well enforced. As you and your listeners probably know, there's still a lot of steering that goes on. There was a very explosive uh, series of articles uh, published in Long Island Newsday a year and a half ago that documented the extent of racial steering that still goes on by uh, some realtors and real estate agents. New York is where the survey was done, and New York is unusual in that it doesn't have a two-way consent requirement for recording somebody, so they were able to send black and white testers with identical resumes and financial backgrounds and uh, job histories and hidden cameras, which they did not need to tell the realtors about. And so they were able to document the extent of steering of uh, African-American home buyers being sent to black neighborhoods, uh, white home buyers being sent to white neighborhoods. So there's uh, some cleaning up that needs to be done in the real estate industry. I don't believe that most real estate agents do this, but there's still cleaning up to do. But even if it were fully enforced, the Fair Housing Act, it wouldn't solve this problem because what the Fair Housing Act does is prohibit ongoing discrimination. Well, once you've created the kind of wealth gap that uh, we created as a result of the suburbanization policy of the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration, simply telling African-Americans that they're now no longer prohibited from moving into communities that they would have been able to move into had they been able to do so when they were created, but which are now unaffordable actually to working class families of either race, unless they have down payment assistance from their parents or grandparents, simply telling them they're now free to move into those communities is not going to solve the problem. So we need subsidies, affirmative action programs and housing for African-Americans beyond the Fair Housing Act that will enable them to purchase homes that are presently unaffordable to them because of this history and many other policies we could follow. The, the policies are well known. Policy experts, housing experts, journalists like me, we all know what needs to be done to redress racial segregation in housing. What's missing is not policy ideas. What's missing is uh, an activated citizenry that will create the political support for redressing segregation. And that's why um, we are so committed to help communities develop local committees as part of this new movement to redress racial segregation. You know, when you talk about all of these things, you know, education and the disparities that exist there, housing and the disparities that exist there, you know, at the root of that, what I hear you say again and again is, is the economic disparity in wages. You know, everybody's working, <laughs> you know, we all have jobs, but not everybody is able to provide these things, right, that we've talked about. Looking forward, I mean, I know you focus on housing, you focus on education, but there's, again, this wage component. You know, if you could maybe share your thoughts a little bit with us about, you know, the wage gap in this country, we've been hearing for the past decade that it's larger than it's ever been. You know, the disparity between households is, is just out of control, you know, when you look at it historically. And again, that's a huge hurdle. I think for us collectively to try to figure out how do we how do we fix this, right? Uh, you're absolutely right. I would never in a million years uh, suggest that the only thing we need to do to fix this is housing policy. One of the things that contributes to segregation is income inequality. As I mentioned earlier, African-Americans on average have family incomes that are about 60%, 60% of white incomes. 
there's another whole story behind that. I, I talk about it a little bit in my book. A lot of federal policy is involved in the creation of that. But residential segregation and income segregation interact. When African-Americans live in communities where they have no access to good jobs or even transportation to get to those jobs, where they live in communities which uh, concentrate children with uh, serious social and economic disadvantages that inhibit their ability to learn, they're less prepared to get better jobs when they leave school. So these two issues, housing segregation and income segregation, interact. Clearly, raising uh, the incomes of African-Americans is essential, but it alone is not going to give African-Americans equal access to communities from which they were once excluded. So we need income policies. $15 minimum wage, for example, should be required nationally. Your senator, uh, Sherrod Brown, is a leader in addressing these issues of income inequality. And um, I hope that in this administration, there'll be some steps taken to redress that aspect of the problem as well. Yeah, I hope so, too. You mentioned it a little bit, you know, realtors and the work that the real estate community has to do in regards to this problem. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on um, what do you think the role of a realtor is in this and maybe some advice on, on how realtors can be a part of this change? Well, one thing that local real estate boards can do, and I alluded to this before, is clean up their own acts. I am not suggesting that most realtors continue to discriminate, but there are certainly many of them who do. And uh, that's been documented. Most of the documentation we do from audit studies, but they don't identify perpetrators. They just produce statistics showing that uh, there is still significant steering in the real estate industry. I think local real estate boards should take this on, not wait for the government to force them to do it, but take on aggressive programs to clean up their own acts. That's one thing that realtors can do. The other thing that realtors can do is make sure that homes are marketed in a non-discriminatory way and in fact in an affirmative way to African-Americans to try to assist them. There's much that can be done in terms of consumer education for first-time home buyers that the uh, real estate industry can undertake. The uh, National Association of Realtors and the National Association of Real Estate Boards, which is the African-American Association that used to be separate and now is a part of the National Association of Realtors, do have programs to educate consumers, first-time home buyers, about uh, how they can access uh, home buying opportunities. Many communities have enacted uh, down payment assistance programs, and the real estate industry should be advocates and supporters of those programs and for their expansion. So those are some of the things I think that the real estate industry can do. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we had Lydia Pope, who is going to be the 2021 president of the NAREB uh, organization on, and she shared with us some of the things uh, that she plans on doing as president to really make some of these things happen in regards to how to help, you know, African-Americans with their credit and how to, you know, start saving for a down payment on the home. And I know one of the things that um, Ohio Realtors has really been an advocate of is this first time home buyer savings bill that will kind of give you, you know, a tax break on saving for a down payment of your home. And, and hopefully we can encourage, you know, this law to be passed and eventually, you know, become a thing and, and something that will help not only, you know, the white first time home buyers, but African Americans as well. So there are things out there, you know, that are happening and it's encouraging to see that 
there may be a way we can help this issue and maybe just be more fair and equal across the board with all of our fair housing opportunities as well as as educational opportunities as well as wage opportunities so there's hope um i i, I hope that we get to see that you know in our lifetime and at least have some change that we can actually be proud of and i'll just give a plug for lydia pope she is from ohio <laughs> so we're super excited uh, she's from the cleveland ohio area and we're really proud that she's going to be the national president next year so little plug for ohio Yes, yes. Well, Richard, this was amazing. Thank you so much for everything. Um, this was a true pleasure. And let's hope for progress. Let's hope for change. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you for listening to The Real View. That wraps up today's episode. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at ohiorealtors.org slash The Real View and on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Have questions, comments, or suggestions? We want to hear from you. Email us at podcast at ohiorealtors.org. We'll see you next time. This has been a Humble Pod production. Stay humble.